0: of um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, two of the largest prophetic books in the Old Testament, and it can be found on starting on page 686 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. Now to briefly review, it's been a few weeks, um, if not more, since we've been in Lamentations. Um, Recall that Lamentations, five chapters long and consists in five poems basically. Each one of Lamentations five chapters is a poem that reflects upon what was perhaps the most tragic event in Israel's history. Uh, namely the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the raising of the city itself at the hands of Babylon in 586 B.C., which eventually which which started off Israel's 70-year exile away from the land of promise. So with that tragic context in mind, let's turn our attention to Lamentations chapter 2. And because these um, verses, these chapters are a little bit longer, Um, than normal. We're going to read this in parts, so we're going to start off just by reading the first 10 verses, and then as we work our way through the sermon, we'll eventually cover all of the verses before us. So let's start out by doing Lamentations 2, verses 1 through 10. As always, I'll be reading out of the ESV, so hear now the word of the Lord. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel, He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand. In the face of the enemy, he is burned like a flaming fire, and Jacob consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Earlier in the Bible, um, way way back in the book of Genesis, you know, one of the first sibling rivalries that we come across um, beyond uh, Cain and Abel, that is, is the one that unfolds between twin brothers in the book of Genesis, Jake, uh, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau. Now, if you don't know their story, uh, it basically begins in Genesis chapter 25, when we learn that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is pregnant with twins, and the Lord proclaims, even before their birth, that these two sons, Jacob and Esau, uh, they would have quite a future, because they would eventually sprout two nations. Uh, Jacob would eventually become Israel, and his 12 sons would eventually make up the 12 tribes of Israel, and Esau would eventually become the father of Edom, another nation and one that would often be a thorn in the side to Israel throughout their history. In fact, when Babylon raised the temple in the city of Jerusalem many years later, that's the context again for, for the book of Lamentations, Edom was one of those nations that rejoiced over her demise and used that tragic event in Israel's history to their own advantage. But this clash between these two kingdoms, Jacob, Israel, and and Edom, Esau, uh, was foreshadowed all the way back in the book of Genesis in the lives of Jacob and Esau themselves. You see, from the womb, the Lord proclaimed that Jacob and his family would be the conduit of God's blessing rather than Esau. But that doesn't mean that everything that Jacob did in his life, and especially how he related to his brother Esau throughout their lives, was all godly or above board because it, in fact, it, it very much wasn't. Uh, for one thing, Jacob's name means something like he cheats. Don't look at Pastor Jacob any differently. Um, and, and Jacob, in Genesis at least, lived up to that name quite well. Uh, we learn from their story in Genesis that, that one day, after Jacob's scheming and, and cheating, living up to his name quite well, Esau is so angry and upset with his brother Jacob that he determines He's gonna kill him. And so Jacob, hearing of Esau's plans, he gets out of town. He flees and he doesn't show his face before Esau for something like 20 years. But after those 20 years and several chapters later in the book of Genesis, uh, Jacob and his now quite large family, they decide to return home. But Jacob knows that in coming home, he's gonna have to face the music, a terrifying prospect given how he left matters. And so Jacob reaches out to Esau, he sends messengers ahead of him, tests the waters a little bit, but he soon gets word that Esau, when hearing that he's coming home, is coming out first to meet him. He finds out that Esau's coming out to meet him, but he's not coming alone. He's coming with 400 men. Now this rather ominous piece of information in the book of Genesis sounds to Jacob just as threatening as that would sound to us as well. And Genesis 32 tells us that when Jacob hears this, he's greatly afraid and he's distressed and he frantically divides up his family to give everyone a fighting chance when Esau eventually comes. They can understand the calculus in Jacob's head. And you know, on the surface, there's a reasonable kind of calculus. He knows how he tricked his brother how he sinned against his brother. And even though all of that was part of God's sovereign plan and Esau certainly wasn't the above board godly victim in all of it, Jacob is incredibly afraid of being in the presence of his brother, knowing how he wronged his brother, knowing how he sinned against his brother and knowing the earlier determination of Esau to do away with him. And so the question is faced, faces Jacob in the passage, how in the world would a meeting between him and his brother Esau go well? How in the world would that work out in his favor? But when we step back from that story in Genesis 32, and we begin to reflect a little bit on our own relationship with God, well, a similar kind of question faces us too, doesn't it? Because when we understand the nature of God and particularly the potency of God's all-consuming wrath and his Divine determination to punish sin and sinners. And then we recognize, as any honest self evaluation will show, how we've wronged God in some pretty serious ways and are therefore right objects of his wrath. The stomach churning question faces each of us how in the world could we approach a God who judges sin and sinners when we ourselves? are sinners. Well, it's also this question that hangs over Lamentations chapter 2. How in the world could sinners become once again God's welcomed sons when God is the one who judges sin? And yet the message of Lamentations chapter 2, as we'll come to see as we work through the passage, is that even when we are dismayed by the shame of our own sin, even when those regrets from the past begin to surface once again, and we understand the consequences that we've suffered in our own lives for our sin, or even if we haven't, the consequences we should have suffered for our sin, is that the one who judges sin and sinners is the same one who invites us to return to him and find renewal. And so rather than hiding from God in the shame of our own sin or ignoring God and living like functional atheists in our lives, Jeremiah encourages us in our sin to draw near to the judge. Draw near to the judge. And so, our big idea as we dive into Lamentations chapter 2 is this don't distance yourself from the judge. Don't distance yourself from the judge. Um, three points. We work through the passage. The first is the God who judges sin in verses 1 through 10. Second, the weight of God's judgment in verses 11 through 17 and then third, responding to God the judge in verses 18 through 22. I'll remind us of each of those points as we transition. So let's begin the God who judges sin, looking specifically now at verses 1 through 10. Now, in the years leading up to the the tragic events that befell Israel in 586 B.C., one of Israel's big miscalculations was that they had a certain view of God, that regardless of what they thought about God, regardless of how they lived in God's world, that God, they thought, was so pro-them that he would, of course, let his people off the hook. But they hadn't seen themselves in the process as they really are, nor did they see God as he really is. And so throughout the first 10 verses of our passage here, Jeremiah, it's as if he pulls back the veil to show God's people that what happened in that tragic event in 586 BC, it wasn't just some historic tragedy, although it was that, but it was fundamentally a manifestation of God's judgment against sin. So first, notice that throughout these verses, Jeremiah, he gives us, as he did earlier in chapter 1, several details about just what happened in 586 B.C., Um, To highlight a couple details, Jeremiah mentions in verse 6 how the Lord on 586 BC laid waste his booth or his meeting place. That's clearly a reference to the destruction of the temple, this divinely appointed meeting place between God and his people, a tragedy in Israel's history that could hardly be overstated. And when that happened at the hands of Babylon, the divinely appointed festivals and feasts, these celebrations in Israel's life that orbited all around the temple, that celebrated what the Lord had done in Israel's history, well, those festivals and feasts, they also ceased. Then in verse 7, we're reminded that the altar, this altar that was located in the outer courtyard of the temple, was also destroyed. But like the temple, this altar wasn't just some fancy piece of architecture or minor piece of equipment, this was the place where sacrifices were offered in Israel's life in order to atone for sin. And so its destruction then brought about the terrifying prospect for God's people that if they could no longer bring, about, bring sacrifices before the Lord, what hope would they have to repair their relationship with God? These events, these details that, lem- that the, the, the Jeremiah raises for us, these are events worth lamenting in their own right, as is everything else he mentions, from the destruction of the strongholds in Judah, in verse 2, to the expulsion of Israel's kings and priests who were responsible for teaching and nurturing a love for the law of God among the people of God. But again, well, it may have been easier easier for Israel to stomach if these were just historic events and that was it. That's not what Jeremiah says. Because in everything that's transpired, Jeremiah tells us that this was a manifestation of God's wrath against his people. Again, look at just how many times these details are attributed to God's wrath. We can hardly get through one verse with at least a reference to God's wrath. In verse 1, we hear two references to God's anger. In verse two, we hear that it was God's wrath behind the destruction of Judah's strongholds. And in verse five, we read how the Lord had become like an enemy by warring through Babylon against his people. And then in verse six, we read that the Lord in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. This was a manifestation of the anger of the Lord. And yet when we hear about God's fierce anger, We also have to understand a few things about it. For one thing, God's anger, unlike our anger, it's not a fickle or a heat of the moment, unexpected lashing out. Because in verse eight, we're reminded that the Lord had determined to pour out his wrath in this way. And then later in verse 17, Jeremiah says that the Lord had done what he purposed. He carried out his word. You see, what God's people experienced in the destruction of the city and temple in 586 B.C. was exactly what God told them would happen several centuries earlier, back in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically back in Deuteronomy 28. These were the consequences in Deuteronomy 28 for violating the terms of their covenant relationship with God. God had said that these things would happen He was righteous in his anger, unlike we often are in our anger. And now, in the events that Jeremiah reflects upon and mourns, Israel and Judah, the people of God, are reaping the wages of sin, namely death and destruction at the hands of the Lord. But beyond Israel's specific circumstances in our text, these are truths about the Lord that we can't forget either understand that God is still a God of wrath. That's one of God's attributes. And though it might not be an attribute that makes us feel all warm and, and cozy inside, it's actually very good news that God is a God of wrath because it means that God cares too much about justice and holiness simply to let injustice, injustice rather, and unholiness go unchecked. In fact, theologians note that God's wrath is the inverse of his justice and holiness. Think about it like this, if God could let injustice slide, then we couldn't say that he's a God of justice, but his wrath ensures that injustices will be dealt with. Now, now Jeremiah obviously has a solid grasp on God's wrath, and in order to restore their relationship with him, Israel and Jerusalem need to understand these truths about God, too. They need to understand that what happened in this tragedy wasn't just a geopolitical tragedy in the ancient Near East. This was a manifestation of God's righteous anger against them. And brothers and sisters, as we grow in our relationship with the Lord and we seek to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, these are truths about God that we can't put aside or pretend as if they're not real either. These are truths that we need to know about God, too. Now, when it comes to the wrath of God, there, there are at least a couple of things to keep in mind. For one thing, as terrifying as the prospect of God's wrath is, and, and the author of Hebrews underscores this when he tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as terrifying as that might be, for those who cling to Christ by faith, the good news is that we do not and will not experience the full fury of God's wrath, not because God is somehow cavalier towards our sin, but because for you and me, friends, God's wrath has already been poured out upon Jesus for us and for our salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that God's wrath in no way applies to us today because God still disciplines us as his children. And as our confessional standards puts it, although we can never finally fall away from God if we're attached in faith to Jesus Christ, we may still, by our sin, quote, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored to us until we humble ourselves, confess our sins, beg pardon, and renew faith in repentance. God is still holy, God still disciplines us, and God calls us to be aware of our need to continually repent of our sins as an affront against his holy nature. But that's the first thing to keep in mind as it relates to God's judgment. The second is that God's judgment against unbelief isn't just a thing of the future. And it's not just a thing that looks as outwardly terrifying as it did when it fell on Jerusalem in 586 BC. Because in Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul makes the point that God's wrath is revealed right now from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How is that the case? Well, according to Paul, in giving people over to their sins. You see, when the unbelieving world hardens its heart in unbelief towards God and suppresses the truth that's evident about God, the Apostle Paul tells us that God's judgment manifests itself in the presence in giving people over to more sin. It's as if the Apostle Paul tells us that sin begets more sin, such that an increasing numbness towards God and towards holiness is one indication of the wrath of God being poured out at present. Now, several years ago, I I remember hearing a story of a a young woman, and this young woman had grown up in the church. She grew up in a theologically rich tradition as well, Uh, but but, uh, in the months and years since then, she had walked away And in what I heard, she was describing her experience in walking away from the faith, and specifically how she was able to, quote-unquote, free herself from the guilt of her sin. As she described the days and months and the years since she walked away, uh, she talked about how at first she had this crushing sense of guilt, and yet over time, that guilt slowly abated to the point where she was perfectly content, fulfilled even, to live any way that she wanted to live, believe anything that she wanted to believe. And yet the terrifying interpretation of that, according to the Apostle Paul, is that God was giving that young woman over to her sin. That feeling of freedom and fulfillment, was a manifestation of God's judgment, which apart from the Holy Spirit's work of drawing her to faith and repentance, which God is more than capable of doing that, and we pray that he would, would inevitably lead to the full realization of that judgment in the end. Now, although Paul has the unbelieving world in mind in Romans chapter 1, not not believers when he talks about the wrath of God in that sense, it still serves in part as a warning to us as well that if we sense in ourselves a growing numbness towards God, a laissez-faire attitude, towards his standards of holiness, towards godliness, towards his word. Friends, that should give us pause. Like Israel was able to do in the days of Jeremiah before Babylon raised the city, we can justify virtually anything that we wanna justify and have all kinds of false prophets soothe us in our sin, but all the while miss that this apathy towards God should terrify us and should be the impetus to call us back, draw us back once again to the Lord. Now, as it relates to our text, understand that the first step for Israel in restoring their relationship with God is to recognize who God is. That's fundamental. He's the God who is sovereign over heaven and earth, the God who cares about holiness, the God who sovereignly ordained the army of Babylon to march into Jerusalem and raise the city and temple, and the God who did that because he is zealous for his name and he will not let sin go unchecked. Jeremiah wants Israel in the wake of their devastation to see God rightly. And friends, the same applies to us today too. But as we continue in our text, Jeremiah then communicates that such a truth about God is, for one thing, something that that shouldn't just stay in the head. This is something that should deeply affect us as well. And then as we continue, we'll also find that paradoxically, this is also a truth that by no means should keep us as the people of God from returning to the Lord. So second, this leads us to our second point where we're looking at verses 11 through 17, the weight of God's judgment. And so I'm gonna read these next few verses for us. This is verses 11 through 17 again. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea, who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. Uh, They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, uh, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth, of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah. This is the day we have longed for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. On May 6, 1937, there was a radio journalist by the name of Herbert Morrison. And good old Herbert was sent out one day to Manchester Township, New Jersey, to cover the now infamous landing of the Zeppelin airship known as the Hindenburg. If you listen to to Morrison's recording of the landing, I was able to listen to it this week, uh, or even just read the transcript of it. It's interesting, it starts out all quite normal, pretty just matter of of fact. He explains that, It just started raining in the day. He talks about how the motors of the airship are keeping the airship afloat. And then all of a sudden, almost on a dime, his tone and pace suddenly becomes frantic. He describes the the fire that suddenly breaks out before his eyes. He frantically explains how the airship, now engulfed in flames, is falling to the ground. And then Morrison is so overcome with the tragedy unfolding before his eyes that he provides commentary. Probably the most famous line from his um, uh, report is, oh, the humanity. And then his voice begins to crack a bit as grief makes its way into his descriptions. And by the end of the recording, he can't do it anymore. He literally says, I I can't, I I listen, folks. I'm going to have to stop for a moment because I lost my voice. You see, for Morrison, a tragedy like the Hindenburg could not be described in simply a neutral, detached, objective way. And the same goes for Jeremiah in our text. You see for Jeremiah, it's as if when verse 11 opens that it suddenly becomes too much for him to simply describe what happens and why it happened as if this were just an intellectual exercise. Now he still continues in the verses that we just read to tell us a little bit more about what happened when Babylon raised the city in 586 BC. But now all of these descriptions are wrapped up from start to finish in the depth of his woe in the depths of grief. Notice in verse 11, he describes himself weeping, his stomach churning, as he reflects upon the suffering of his people that happened in 586 BC. And in particular, he singles out how this event affected the most vulnerable in the city, the infants and babies. This is the kind of suffering that would bring anyone to tears. In verse 13, he then asks several halting questions about the suffering of Jerusalem, rhetorical questions, questions that he himself doesn't answer, perhaps because he doesn't even know how to answer them in the moment. These initial questions in verse 13 are kind of like the question that surfaces occasionally in the Scriptures, how long, O Lord, a question that's part and parcel to laments, but a question that even we can't answer either. And then in verses 15 through 16, he describes the utter shame and humiliation as nations, nations like Edom, celebrate Israel's demise and mock their suffering. A reality which perhaps stirs even greater lament and further tears given that Israel and Jerusalem were supposed to reflect the majesty of the Lord among the nations. And yet even as Jeremiah laments these realities throughout our texts, we also notice that he never makes an excuse for Israel's sin. You see, two things can be true. It can be true that God's wrath was righteous because of Israel's sin, and Jeremiah never denies that at all. In fact, he makes that very connection throughout Lamentations. After all, Israel had listened to false prophets in verse 14 who pacified them in their sin. Rather, than Jeremiah throughout his ministry who was constantly calling them to repentance. But it can also be true, even as Israel only had themselves to blame, that this is still an awful tragedy and that God's people paid a heavy price in the invasion of Babylon and that this is still worth lamenting, even when they only have themselves to blame. Jeremiah's response in these verses gives us a window into how all of this affected the prophet. But of course, it also poses the question for us, how do we respond to these same theological truths? You know, over the years, I can think of several real-life ministry examples when I've talked to people about, you know, any number of topics in the Bible, something that the Bible says, simply thinking that all I was doing is teaching or communicating or pontificating about something that God says in His Word without expecting the responses that I've received. You see, on more than one occasion, and maybe you can relate with this too, uh, I've had people get quite angry with me when I thought we were just having a casual conversation about theology. And then on the other hand, there have been other times when I've talked to people about God, about what God says in his word, uh, about any number of issues, hoping that the person would take to heart the things I've communicated, and not just think that we were engaged in an intellectual exercise. You see, whether I expected it or not, desired it or not, the truth of God's word, and particularly as it relates to the truth of God's judgment against sin, should not leave us unaffected. Now, responding rightly to those matters is another thing altogether, but truth calls for a response. That's what we find to be true with the prophet Jeremiah, but is that true of you? Now perhaps the idea of God's wrath, something that our passage really highlights, something that we're highlighting today, is for you little more than that, little more than just an idea, something that's a possibility, but lies so far into the future that there's no need to respond to it now. And we've already talked how God's wrath is poured out on unbelief right now. And moreover, this isn't something that's only a possibility or a probability, because what happened in Israel's history in 586 BC was a token of God's ultimate wrath, a foretaste that manifested itself against sin and against sinners in history, so that we wouldn't look at Israel's misfortunes and think that that was only their misfortunes. Friends, that was the wrath of God that was poured out because of sin. And in the same way that it was certain to happen because God said it would happen in this way back in Deuteronomy 28, it's also certain that it will be poured out on you if you're not clinging to faith in Jesus Christ, the Christ who has already took in, up, taken upon himself the full fury of God's wrath for all those who put their trust in Christ. Perhaps the takeaway then for some of you is that you need to see truths like this, like Jeremiah did, and wake up a little bit to your own complacency. But the good news for those of us who do feel the weight of God's judgment against sin like Jeremiah, who have come to know and believe that God will judge sin, is that even when we recognize that we are sinners, even when we come to understand that we are right objects of God's wrath, our hope, is that the same God who judges with fire is the same one who also heals and invites us as the people of God to come to him now and be healed and find rest for our souls. And so this leads to our third and final point where we're looking at responding to God as judge and that takes us to verses 18 through 22. I invite you again to follow along with me as we close out the passage by reading those verses. Again, verses 18 through 22. Their hearts cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent night and day. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? The children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Now within these final verses, verses 18 through 22, we essentially hear two voices speaking. In the first two verses, verses 18 through 19, this is the voice of Jeremiah. This is as if Jeremiah is finally able to raise himself at this point, somewhat at least, from the, the pit of despair And he pivots from his own lament that occupied the previous verses. And he's now able to speak to Jerusalem personified. That is Jerusalem as sort of this poetic representation for God's people. And he summons Jerusalem beginning in verse 18 to lament. He he calls upon her, and by extension you and I as well, to let her tears stream down her broken walls like a flood, to, to lament what just happened and why it just happened. And then specifically, he calls upon Jerusalem to pour out her heart before the presence of the Lord. You see, the Lord may be the all consuming judge of the earth. He may have punished his people in his wrath for their sin, but he hasn't stopped being their God. His people may have been faithless towards him, but he wasn't going to give up on his people. He's still their God. He's still willing to hear their prayers and receive their tears. And so in verses 20 through 22, this is exactly what Jerusalem now does. It's no longer Jeremiah who speaks about Jerusalem or even to Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem herself who rises from the ashes just briefly and cries out to God. And yet though Jerusalem speaks at last, it's not as if in these final verses, this final prayer of Jerusalem, as if she offers a lengthy or theologically robust prayer This isn't like Daniel's rich prayer of confession in Daniel chapter nine, you can read that on your own. This is quite brief in comparison to that and in comparison with what we just heard from Jeremiah. And and, and the prayer from Jerusalem also doesn't really end with a note of confidence. In fact, commentator Philip Ryken comments, quote, the second lament that is Lamentations chapter two ends with cannibalism and sacrilege with unburied corpses mounted in the streets, the fearful results of divine wrath. And yet, Reichen continues, noting that, quote, Jerusalem here hardly knows how to pray about such things, but at least she can bring them to the Lord's remembrance. And it's that last point that's particularly important here. If you recall back in verse 13, Jeremiah, he had asked several somewhat rhetorical questions, questions in passing, questions that he himself didn't know how to answer when he asked them. But now by the end of this second lament, we begin to arrive at an answer to that final question he asked in verse 13, namely, who can heal you? Because though God is a God of wrath who will by no means clear the guilty, he's also the merciful and faithful God of the covenant who hears the cries of his people, even when his people only have themselves to blame, and he won't let the destruction of his people be the end of their story. Lamentations chapter two may end with with many unanswered questions. For example, how in the world will the Lord heal Jerusalem and the people of God? But as the story of God's dealing with his people unfolds throughout the scriptures, will we begin to arrive at an answer to that question of healing? when God wars with even greater fury against his own son. You see, the greatest terror of the cross of Jesus Christ wasn't the physical torment that Christ endured, as horrible as it was. The greater terror was when Christ drank the wrath of God down to the dredges for you and me. The English Puritan Thomas Goodwin once wrote that Christ suffering the wrath of God on the cross, quote, was a clearer manifestation of God's anger and a higher piece of justice against sin than if God had made and there sacrificed millions of worlds. But this is exactly what Christ did for you and me, such that even when God disciplines us today, as he does when we sin, we can know that because of the enormity of what Christ suffered for us. Our suffering and the shame that we feel over our sin isn't final. Now, earlier we mentioned how in the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction, when the temple lay in ruins, that God had removed the means of access to him in the old covenant. We heard how the altar was torn down, how the Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of God referenced in verse one, was forgotten. But in tearing down all that the Lord tore down, he was going to rebuild a better temple. And it wouldn't be the temple that was rebuilt or that began to be rebuilt on the same spot 70 years later. It would be the temple of Jesus Christ himself, who provides access for us as the weak and weary, sinful people of God right now, even in our sin, even when God disciplines us for our sin. He provides us access to the heavenly places where He continues to make intercession for us and here are many prayers. And so among the final questions these verses leave us with is how do you come to a God like this? Do you come like Jerusalem and Jeremiah? Again, at no point do we find them defending their sin or protesting God's right to discipline sinners and judge sin. As commentator John McKay puts it, Zion doesn't plead past mercies or former achievements, rather she focuses on the mercy and pity of God when we recognize that God is judge and that we can't stay neutral to God, the only thing that we can bring before him are our prayers for mercy. And then know that because of Jesus Christ, the judge will not cast us out. And so as we prepare to close then, I wanna leave us with this final takeaway, this final exhortation, that's this. In your grief, don't live like an atheist your grief don't live like an atheist. At the beginning of the sermon, I referenced this story of Jacob and Esau from Genesis 32, but we didn't talk about how that story ends. Well, in the aftermath of Jacob's panic at the prospect of Esau coming with 400 men, there are two things that happened. uh, Jacob has this curious encounter with the Lord one night where he wrestles with the Lord for an entire night and the Lord in the midst of that wields his power and with a simple touch of his hip puts his hip socket out of joint humbling Jacob and reminding him of his weakness. And then second, when morning dawns and Jacob eventually comes face to face with Esau weak no doubt from a night of wrestling unable we would imagine to wield any kind of defense against Jacob should Jacob or should Esau decide to come with his 400 men in the fury of his wrath. What does Esau do again? Well, Esau embraces Jacob. We read in Genesis 33, four that he runs to meet Jacob. He embraces him and he falls on his neck and kisses him and together they weep. You see, Jacob begins the night, the evening, absolutely terrified. But though he divides up his family, he doesn't run away. He doesn't make excuses he never waves his fist at esau instead he's forced to come face to face first with his weaknesses and then with who he thought was his enemy esau but at the end of the day esau embraces him as his brother and friends more than jacob we have hope in the gospel that even though our sin brings shame we sometimes suffer the consequences of our sin The Lord is the judge who when we're weak before him and we come before him with nothing to offer, no defense that we could possibly make, what does he do? He embraces us as his own and he bestows on us the riches of heaven. So in your grief, don't live like an atheist. Friends, live like a son, live like a daughter, because in Jesus Christ, that's who you are. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that though we sin and fall short of the glory of God, though we are often overcome with our sin, we suffer the consequences of our sin, you are the God who welcomes us back. You're the God who heals us of our many sins, the God who hears our many prayers, and the God who promises us an eternal weight of glory. Lord, I pray that in light of who you are, that we would be free to be honest with you about our sin, knowing that our sin has, the consequences for our sin have already been poured out and paid by Jesus Christ, that we would be honest with our sin, and that we would come to you to find healing and to be our refuge. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.